ladies. Thank you so much for joining me today at the Morbid Museum. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So I have I have Hannah Pulaski here, and then I have another individual who actually is preferring to stay anonymous for this interview, and we'll explain why that is. But both of these people are part of, I guess you'd call yourself a collective, an organization. How do you, how do you self-reference? Uh, we're a campaign called Protect the Motor. Mm-hmm. So let's let's start just by saying what is protect the muter the muter. See, I'm going to do that a lot. So muter. <laughs> I don't want you to feel okay. self about that. Um, Thomas Dent Mutter was actually born Thomas Dent Mutter. Um, he was born in Virginia, and he went to France uh, when he was older, and his entire family was dead. And he wanted to seem cosmopolitan and fancy. So when he moved back to the states, he put an umlaut over the U. Um, love it, love it. Because he wanted to be more European, which I yeah. think is my favorite thing. <laughs> it's so, so relatable. So, Same. <laughs> yeah. And it was, you know, it was the mid 1800s. And that was something that you could just sort of do. Yeah. Um, and so don't feel too bad about not being able to to pronounce Mutter because it wasn't really his name. That's, that makes me feel so much better because I've I've always said it wrong, then right, then right, then wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's the the when you see an umlaut over a letter, just imagine that there's an e next to it. Thank so you. That's, that's the wonderful. that's the rule. So, um, mutter, but you know, you're, you're it's the least important part. Yeah. Um, as for how we got started earlier this year, uh, people started noticing that uh, the online materials for the Mutter Museum had been stripped. Uh, the YouTube videos, the social media content. Even the social media avatars, like it used to be the paper mache eyeball, and it was changed into just the U with the umlaut over it. Right. Um, and there was no communication about what was happening. It was just all of a sudden this, you know, very um, well subscribed to YouTube channel had been gutted. And, and when, um, do you remember what month exactly this really started? To I believe take it was hold? January. It was, yeah, at the, it was right it was at the around, beginning. It was yeah. around January or February that people started noticing. A couple of us were talking behind the scenes, but not really doing much yeah. about it. And okay. and so um, I, I'm one of those people where I'm like, okay, obviously something's going on. And I started looking for, there must be like a protest that's going to start or a something. And there wasn't anything yet. And I was like, oh, I guess that means that I'll do this. Um, and so really what I did was I looked at the comments on social media to see who was uh, commenting and posting and noticing the most. And I pulled them together into an Instagram chat and was like, hey, I don't know all of you, um, but uh, we seem to be the loudest voices. You know, what what are we going to do? Um, yeah. And I had I had met Hannah once. Uh, we got in a fight at the Mutter because we had cool. differing <laughs> opinions about a book. Um this should be it should be stated that this was about eight years ago. This is eight, not, yeah, it was a long time ago. Like we are both grown-ups now, yes, but it's yes. very much like we a not. one of the well, okay. Shh. <laughs> oh, you're fighting now. <laughs> <laughs> um and so like there were there were people that like I knew of and people that I knew. And we just sort of like pulled together and we're like, what are we gonna do about this? Um because we all Love, you know, none of us are, are like medical doctors or anything, but we are just people who love the mutter. Um, and so there's a small group of us, and we, um, you know, wrote this petition together, uh, which launched at the end of May. And we formed, uh, we're on four social media platforms. So we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Um, we have the petition, which now has over 35,000 signatures. Which is fantastic. We, thank you. Yeah. We have a newsletter uh, that people can sign up to. Um, we send out uh, stickers and flyers and postcards for free for anybody who wants to pass them out at events or, you know, put them on their laptops or whatever the case may be. Uh, we have had artists that have reached out to us about, you know, um, I made this t-shirt for you guys. Um, you know, you can have the proceeds. Uh, we just had a tattoo artist reach out and say, hey, you guys have a logo. Um, I'd be happy to, to, if people get that logo tattooed, the proceeds from that, uh, you know, I'll do it at a discount and you can have the proceeds towards the campaign. Uh, the proceeds that we get for the campaign are used exclusively for boasting, boosting social media posts. Uh, right. Because on Facebook, if you don't boost a post, no one sees it. Correct. They just don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then also for the 
printing of the materials that we send out for free. So those are the only, uh, you know, proceeds that, that 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 goes to. Everything else is totally volunteer. It's totally out of pocket. It's amazing. Um, well, um, who sort of make up this uh, campaign? Because I know some some individuals have formally worked there. Some people are just big fans or patrons so of the museum. There are all of us come from different professions. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of people who work more with the tech side of things in their daily lives. There, um, I personally uh, used to be an intern and volunteer at the Mütter Museum. I worked there for three years. Um, I have a master's degree in paleopathology. So basically think the TV show Bones, but actually scientifically accurate and <laughs> are more than a hundred years old. Right. So there's, a lot less of the, oh, God, this person could be walking around today. That's upsetting. And more of an, wow, I'm so excited I get to meet you, person from the 1840s. But we also really shapes your whole opinion about the Mutter in the first place, right? Right. (laughs) And it's, I mean, that gives you a sort of insight into that feeling. But we also have people who are more art-centered. We have people who are more archivally-centered. It's just a whole bunch of people from different backgrounds the the bulk of the the people who and like I said there's you know five or six of us are are mostly just people who love and support the mutter and are and honestly I think that that kind of speaks to the importance of the museum that you don't have to be a doctor or medical professional or you know um anything you can just sort of be a person who like I always tell people when they ask me how did you get involved in the campaign I say I was a really weird little kid <laughs> and my teachers told my parents that if I didn't stop talking about leeches and Greek mythology and tuberculosis, I'd never have any friends. And they were Untrue. right. They were right <laughs> until uh, I went to places like the Mutter and met people where I'd see a skull and I'd be, you know, I'd say, you know, Al Capone had syphilis and that's actually what drove him insane and killed him. And then the person would say, you know, people don't realize what syphilis does uh, to your body if you don't get it treated. And then someone else would kind of come up and go, you know, Benjamin Rush uh, used to prescribe purgatives. And like having that community of all these former weird little kids who didn't have any friends and now have people mm-hmm. married with people who I also have several chronic health conditions. And yeah. I went to the Mutter and saw one of my conditions that I didn't even know how to name represented. Um, yeah. I didn't, I, I truly didn't. I thought it was just a, a weird thing about me. And then I found out it has a name. And because I knew the actual name for it, I was able to find a community of people and then get help for that thing. Yeah, let's come Let's come back to that because I think that's a really interesting and important part of the museum story, especially today. But I want to take it back in time for a moment. Hannah, since you worked there, if you want to talk about sort of how did this place get established? We've talked about it ever so slightly on the podcast before. If our uh, we call our audience members more buddies, by the way, if our more buddy and they are all those kids that you're talking about, <laughs> we are all those kids. Um, as our more buddies would remember, we talked a little bit about uh, the College of Physicians, and uh, we've brought up Mutter here and there in regards to. We did a history of operating theaters and anatomical theaters and stuff like that. But we never have really talked about the museum as an entity very much. So, Hannah, if you wouldn't mind going into that a little bit, that would be awesome. Basically, the College of Physicians of Philadelphia was founded in 1787. It was sort of a boys club for eminent surgeons and doctors to talk to one another, meet up and have uh, lectures and courses shared. It's not a school, just a club. For, we're already doctors. In the 1840s, they formed the first iteration of a museum for the college, mm-hmm. and it had different types of pathologies in it. There are actually a couple of those um, residents and specimens still on display. Uh, one of them, well, three of them, are some specimens of cholera from the epidemic in the 1840s. But they then, in the 1860s, there was a whole 
long legal process for this, but Thomas Dunn-Murder realized he was ill, he was dying, and he wanted to bequeath his collection of pathologies to the College of Physicians to form a museum. Uh, he specifically wanted it to be accessible to the public as long as they had uh, an accompaniment by a member of the college. You could purchase a ticket as long as you had a signed permission form, essentially. Wow. He wanted, yeah. He wanted it to be accessible to artists um, and students of medicine for drawing and learning purposes. Now, to put that in a slight context of the world at the time, this was very common in Europe and less common in the U.S. This yeah. was very much another one of those things that Mütter had realized oh, they're doing it like this over there, but we should also be doing it like that over here. And so as time went on, this collection has been added to. Um, now it's beloved and continues to be added to, or at least was until recently. Um, several people spoke up recently about how they donated pieces of themselves to the museum because they realized that there were no modern examples of what they had. Right. Yeah. And we'll, again, we'll come, we'll come to that in a minute. Um, so that's super helpful to have that background. And it sort of has since then existed as this uh, repository of the human body in all its various forms and in deformities <laughs> as well. So um, what have been up until now sort of the the specimens or the residents, as I know, as they're also called affectionately by people who work there and, and big fans of the institution, the ones that have uh, always garnered the most attention, the ones that are the most interesting to people. So I think that there are a couple uh, residents slash specimens that people relate to immediately or think of when they think of the motor. And I, I do want to clarify something for anybody who's not familiar with the museum or the collection that there aren't actually that many whole bodies. Right. So there are uh, fetal specimens that you know you could consider uh, whole bodies, um, but they were um, they are fetal. You know, um, right. there are a couple full skeletons. There are the three skeletons that are in a large display case. There's the um, mutter giant. Mary Ashbery, who's a woman with dwarfism, and then what is unfortunately termed the normal skeleton, um, air quotes were yeah. used. Uh, there are the skeletons of Harry Eastlack and Carol Orzel, who both had FOP. Um, and then I think that there are... Describe what FOP is. Uh, um, fibro-osteva... Fibro-dysplasia osteocans progressiva. Okay. Yes. There, Thank it, you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a long one. Just say FOP. It's just so FOP. Yeah. Um, and and I think that there are one or two others, but there aren't very many full skeletons, um, which leads me to one of the biggest draws is who's known as the soap lady. Um, the soap lady is saponified. Uh, she's called the soap lady because instead of decomposing the way that we usually think of a body, um, she was probably a person who had a lot of fat to her body. And therefore, instead of decomposing the way that um, you may think of a, a normal body, she saponified, which means that the adipose sort of solidified around her and uh, kind of froze her body from decomposing. Uh, her body was stolen by Joseph Lighty, um, and he said that he was her her grandson. He was not. Um, we don't know very much about her because he falsified her name. Um, and so there's the soap lady. Another big attraction is the Einstein brain slides, uh, yes. which were also stolen. Um, and Einstein did not want to be on display. He specifically said, I don't want people to come and worship at my bones. Um, the other big draws are probably the megacolon, uh, which is an eight-foot-long, forty-pound colon that belonged to a freak it's show, crazy. belonged to a freak show performer uh, who went by Balloon Man. Um, that is there. There's also the he had death bones, which essentially means his colon stopped working. It was just collecting all of his waste. Oh my god. Um, there's also the Chang and Eng Bunkers, uh, who were the original Siamese twins, 
Uh, their death cast is on display as well as their conjoined liver. Um, and then also the hurdle skull wall, which is 139 skulls that were collected by the Hungarian born uh, Viennese scientist, Joseph Hurdle, which he collected uh, partially from his own patients uh, and partially from uh, other doctors who supplied his um his skulls, he actually had far more than 139. At one point, he allegedly had Mozart's skull, um, yeah. but it passed out of his collection. Um, and his skulls were collected as a rebuttal to the racial pseudoscience phrenology, um, which says that you can tell the character and moral standing and intelligence of a person based on you know the shape and the bumps and the characteristics of their skull. Uh, it's important to note that with that collection, uh, at the time that Dr. Hurdle was around, the uh, Vienna and the Austrian Empire had what were called charity hospitals, which basically said that if you come here and you get care, it is free. However, if you die, um, your body can be used for research and medical purposes. And mm -hmm. so that was sort of like the trade. Some people consider that informed consent for use of bodies. Uh, some people see that as coercion, you know, yeah. um, it's sort of the same thing now, though, modern day, when you think about, like, I've had a lot of things taken out of my body, and I have to sign a waiver that says those things can be biopsied or used as medical waste or used for research purposes. And I don't really get a say in that. Um, I have tried to get things back, but unless they are, like, bone, they don't give you wet specimens back almost ever. It's a, no. it's a real yeah. process. So you can say that, you know, oh, at the time, you know, they were these things. It's, it's still really modern day that if yeah. you have things taken out of you, you're likely not going to get them back, especially if it's a wet thing. Right, an organ or something along yeah. those lines. If yeah. you're getting like your wisdom teeth or some stones or like a bone or something, more likely, but still unlikely. And I feel like you, you, you know, it's so funny. It's like, you don't get to leave with what you came in with. <laughs> like yeah. they don't even offer it. Like Oh, I always <laughs> joke with my partner that if we ever decide to have kids, I will 100% take a placenta home and put it in a jar myself because I'm not growing an organ I don't get to keep. You can't keep a human being, but I'm not growing an organ I don't get to keep. <laughs> I so, mean, you like grew it. <laughs> it's it's when people talk about, oh, you know, these things are on display and these people, like, it's important to understand that even now, if I have my kidneys taken out, you know, if I have to have a, you know, a piece of my liver taken out or whatever, that is no longer my property. Right. You know, I have to uh, appeal to the pathology board and the state and provide reason and they can deny that, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that when people say like, oh, you know, people didn't consent to having these pieces here, it's important that you understand the context for medical remains. Yeah. You know, and what is- you, I'm so sorry. Do you, do either of you know much around the laws that developed around our ability to keep body parts and skeletal structures and things like that? Hannah, if you want to answer this one. I can try. Um, my friend knows quite a bit more about cadaver law than I do. I do know that there were that th there were a lot more laws in place in the in Europe and the UK for a lot longer than there were in the US. Right. Um, they're just they're really it's quite a modern concept to have this idea of informed consent and body donation. Yeah. And um, like I think of things like, you know, I'm an organ donor that's on my card or whatever. But if I have one of those organs, if I have a, a kidney taken out because it's diseased, obviously I'm not donating it, but I'm also not allowed to keep it. So what then happens to that so, kidney? <laughs> if I may. Um, yeah. So two things. One, and and I really try to like get people to understand the difference between full body, cadaver, corpse, and pieces. Because yeah, they are very different sets of laws. So, for instance, if you have your kidney out, there are, and it does vary state by state because that's how this country is set up, um, sure. fortunately or unfortunately. So, some places um, you can petition and say, uh, according to my faith, for instance, there are Native American practices that say when you're buried, you have to be buried with all your parts, and you can petition to have parts returned to you. Um, but that's not guaranteed. And that goes back a long way. So what 
the major change isn't about how you got your pieces back. It's what happened with those pieces in the first place. So what used to happen is that uh, if there was some sort of interesting surgery, doctors would keep them for themselves because there wasn't uh, as much of the medical you know, board and the federal uh, ideas about things. It was very much like, I am a doctor. I have my practice. I teach my patients or I teach my students. I have these jars of stuff. This is what I'm working with. And there wasn't really a lot of regulation around it. Sure. So when we talk about whole body, you really have three segments of cadaver law. Um, You have the beginning, which is nobody gets to have any cadavers legally. You can't donate your body to science. You can't have it. And it was a very Christian uh, Western thought process of, you know, the body is sacred and it needs to go in the ground and yeah. blah, blah, blah. We talked and, about, we talked about that early stuff in yeah. our um, anatomy theater episodes and how it really relied almost entirely on body snatching right? because so, you were not allowed to yeah. have bodies. And so you really had nothing but grave robbing to rely on. Yeah. Um, and so even if a person wanted to, there was no legal mechanism And there was only, so even if someone said, and it's much like now, if you said, you know, I want to sell my kidney, you can't, you know, even though it's yours. So apply that kind of thinking to, I want to give my body to science. You can't, that just, it it wasn't a structure. Right. Um, Right. And then in the mid 1800s, you had this kind of shift where government said, you guys are stealing so many bodies. Like it's such <laughs> yeah. a problem. They had, they had, there were traps in cemeteries. They had like night watchmen. We they also had... covered Burke and Hare, by the way. Speaking right. of which. So they were finally like. Skeleton really needs a clean at some point. Have seen it. It's in the, in the anatomy museum. Not yes. so small, but the anatomy museum in Edinburgh. Yeah. we, Sorry, we, we were, So as part of our show at the end, we always talk about where you can learn more at an institution. And so we told our audience where they can see Burke, but that's good to know that he's a little dirty. (laughs) Then there was this middle period where they said, we will give you a selection of available corpses. And again, that really reflected the Christianness of the time where they said that you can have unburiable corpses. So it really was mostly um, executed criminals um, and the unclaimed. So the that's where people start to say, well, these are coming from the margins of society, you know, because they were people who couldn't be buried. And so that way they were saying, here are some bodies. It still really wasn't enough. And there was definitely still body snatching, especially because you had bodies that people wanted specific kinds of. And so if all you're being offered is executed criminals, you know, and they're saying, well, I really need to be able to work on the body of a child, or I need to be able to understand this anatomy or that anatomy, they're still grave robbing. And that actually brings us into, believe it or not, the 1960s, which is when the federal government finally passed something called the UAGA, which is the Uniform Anatomy Gate Act, that said, you can donate your body to science the way we that we think of it now. Um, and even with that, there have so been updates. It's it 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 This is one of the things that we are always talking about on my medical Instagram and with Protect the Mooter is that it's very important to understand that there was no issue with any sort of scientific museum like this until incredibly, incredibly recently. We're not talking the 1960s. We are talking the last five years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it's, you know, we talk about sort of the modern idea of informed consent and bodily autonomy. And it's it's very um, easy to think, well, of course, you shouldn't have any parts that are on display that mm-hmm. don't have the full willingness. And of course, you know, you know, if if these people were grave robbed, then they should be returned. And it's a lot harder when you start to peel that onion and say, okay, let's say that there's no paperwork. I made a comparison um, to demanding uh, mortgage paperwork on a house that your family built 400 years ago. Right. You know, there's no bank statements. There's no mortgage paperwork. You know, the people who have remains that are 150 years old didn't fill out an EHR with an advanced medical directive. Mm -hmm. You know, they were people who got medical help, lived or didn't live. Their pieces may or may not have been taken post-mortem, you know, because if it was a tumor that was taken out 
and the doctor said, nifty, I'm going to keep this. That's not really that different to how it is now. Sure. Like we're talking 1830s. If they take out, if they popped out a diseased eyeball and said, this is cool, I'm going to show my students. That's not different from now. If you get a diseased eyeball taken out and your surgeon says, I'm going to use this for teaching purposes. Yeah. You know, so so let's, um, let's now talk about sort of, we kind of already have been talking about the, the controversial side of this museum. Obviously, there's this issue of what we in the museum call uh, provenance, sort of where did these things come from? Are we actually permitted to have them? You know, w- were they gained through illegal means or just through coercive means like you talked about? Or have people actually signed off and said it's cool? And then... You have this other notion of when we're dealing with individuals, perhaps full skeletons or some part of the human being, which was a disfigurement, a disability, something like that. Does this museum then operate more as a sideshow? That's what a detract on the detractor side of things would say, that this is in that same vein. So that brings us to modern day, pretty much, where there's been a lot more uh, criticism and conversation around human remains and body parts in museums. We've mentioned it a few times on the show, how there's sort of this uh, repatriation movement happening in museums, which is a wonderful thing by and large. Um, And now this is something with a little bit of nuance that makes it a little different than your standard, you know, the... Museums of England are full of property that they stole from places that they colonized. Exactly. So let's. So Hannah, since you're already you're you're nodding so intensely at me. So, so if you want to talk about sort of where, what was the first time these these controversies really kind of come to light? Who are the people who are saying, "Hey, hang on a second, something's not right here"? So it happens all over the world. That's really important. But I think. Even before that, we need to just dial back really quickly and just say there is a very major difference between the Mütter Museum and the other museums that are currently engaging in repatriation efforts. The, Please, for yeah. the record, the Mütter is also engaging in those repatriation efforts. They, it's just a lot more time consuming than one would think, especially in the United States when dealing with NAGPRA, which is the Native American Graves Repatriation Act. Sure. So just to set the scene, The vast majority of the museums who are currently engaged in turmoil surrounding all of this are anthropology museums and natural history museums. The Mütter Museum is neither of those. Right. When we talk about an anthropology museum, you are talking about a place where the original idea was to look directly at the differences between human populations and specifically human races and racial categories, both Mm -hmm. said in scare quotes. Very important. The Mütter Museum has never had a full racial collection in the way that other museums did and do. The closest you have is the Hurdle Skull Collection, which my friend talked about, um, which is composed almost entirely of people we would today consider white and European but of, quote, poor moral character in order to prove that amongst this one racial category, there is a whole bunch of differentiation and people don't all look the same way. Mm -hmm. When you're coming to a medical museum, you are looking specifically at pathologies and the science behind the medicine. Right. Very, very different than cultural objects that were stolen. Yeah. However, that being said, the Mütter Museum has just over 50 Native American remains that have been filed with NAGPRA about and they've been they've had that cataloged and ready to go for a while. It's just that kind of bureaucratic process. Do you time. do you know if that conversation started through NAGPRA approach approaching Mütter or was it the other way around? The Mütter approached NAGPRA in, I think, I want to say before 2013 because I think it was earlier than that. Yeah, I know, I know it was, but I know that they had fully completed the, whatchamacallit, the inventory of 
who can we substantively say, who can we prove by provenance and records that we can actually give back? So point being, the reason why I asked the when is this work has actually been going on for a very long time. More than 10 years, definitely more yeah. than 10 years. And okay. and can I speak to something, Hannah, um, that you mentioned this sort of like, how is it a freak show type thing? And yeah. and I have a couple of things to say to that. And one yeah. is that everything is in the eye of a beholder. You sure. know, yeah, there are um, people who walk down the street who are treated like freaks mm-hmm. just for existing, you know. Um, and there was a time in American history where being in a freak show was really the only employment opportunity. So you had, right. uh, me, you had the balloon man, um, you had the, uh, the mutter giant who is seven foot six. And when his skeleton came to the museum, people actually came from freak shows to see if it was someone that they knew. Because at the time, if you were a seven foot six person, you were in a freak show. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. just, that was, that's where you were, you know? Um, and no one actually could identify him. He wasn't, like, no one was missing a giant. Nobody could say like, oh, it's this guy. Um, and so when we talk about, some people see this as, uh, you know, deformities or oddities or a freak show, that is to some extent that's on them. You know, I was in the museum one time and there was a teenager and he kind of giggled and I, I looked over at him and his dad goes, he's 16. And I said, he's your kid, you know? Um, so raise him better, but there are always, there's always going to be people who can't see a penis and not giggle. You know, I'm one of them, but you know, (laughs) and and the difference with the mutter is that when you go there, it is a very respectful display. I will say that there are changes that need to happen. There are terms like idiot um, or hysteria or right. lunacy that were at the time acceptable medical terms. Medical diagnosis, that, yeah. That need more context. There should be something that says, this skull says idiot. At the time, this was a medical diagnosis. There should be more context around things like that, around things like, you know, uh, Mary Ashbury, who we mentioned before, was a woman who had dwarfism. She was a sex worker. She effectively died from childbirth, and her fetal skull is on the floor of her display. It used to be articulated in her hands. It is currently on the floor of the display case. It should be on a pillow or a pillar or a column or something. There should be more context and signage that says, you know, these fetal remains have spina bifida. And at the time, that was a death sentence. And today, these are the modern treatments that still exist. Or that yeah. exist. Something that was in the process of happening mm-hmm. before all of this whole hullabaloo started. Right. Um, there were going to be more collaborations with people from communities with different disabilities to speak on their experience so that you could go from the 19th century all the way into the modern day. So. Yeah. It actually, um, it reminds me of, so I was the uh, director of education for the Anne Frank Center in New York. And uh, there was an exhibition that we had traveling where it goes through the entirety of Anne's story and the history of, um, you know, what the family went through, obviously some World War II history in there too. And then on the other side, at the tail end, it had modern examples of individuals who can be considered um, others in society and how do we ostracize them? How do Mm -hmm. we, you know, sort of other them to the point where it becomes dangerous? Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it's you're you're not only giving it context that we understand who these people were, but you're also saying we need to learn about these illnesses. Um, the, the, the other very important thing, speaking on the museum education side of that, yeah. is one of the first things they tell a volunteer or a docent, or at least they used to, was you will never see the F word in the museum. Even when talking about people who did work at a freak show, you will never yeah. see the F word being used. They, especially when you're talking about people like Chang and Eng Bunker, if you are looking at the display about them, it is about their lives as people, mm-hmm. not as sideshow employees. It Their um, whole display talks about the farm they had with their wives. Who hated each other. Who hated each other. And <laughs> <That's tough. laughs> but it does talk about all of that. It talks about the reason why they passed away. 
Um, yeah. They did share a liver. They could not have been safely uh, separated, separated yeah. in life. But it's one of those things that, again, the museum has worked very hard over a long time. When you have a collection that is so large and a shoestring budget, these changes take time and money and right. uh, and. Uh, And I think with also with this particular type of museum and type of collection, because it is a medical museum, there is a pressure on it to constantly modernize because the way that we view medicine, the way that we understand medicine changes so often that, yeah, I understand that's a costly process. Um, Sorry, what were you going to say? So I want to sort of take back to Dr. Mutter himself um, Mm -hmm. and, and give a little context about why this collection and this museum exists in the first place and why this was important to him. So Thomas Stentmutter, as I mentioned, he was born in Virginia. His entire family died from what he saw as bad medicine. Uh, He himself was a sickly child. Uh, He was orphaned at a young age. Uh, He was effectively raised, and I use air quotes because he really became the ward of a wealthy, uh, distant relative who sent him to boarding school. Um, And he saw the effect of bad medicine and the effect of medical uh, indifference. And so he was a, he was a sickly boy. Um, he died relatively young. Um, there, we're not even sure what killed him because at the time he was just, he had gout. He probably had tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, I, I have heard theory that he had syphilis. I don't know that that is true. I know that he had lung all the, disease. All the, all the hits of the day. Yeah. But it was, you know, it was the mid 1800s. Right. Who didn't have tuberculosis? Oh, you sound like you might have tuberculosis. I don't. I just have chronic asthma. I swear to God, um, I do not have the consumption. Also, who didn't have syphilis? In all honesty, there right. were there are so many pamphlets from yeah. the time no of nose days. People got syphilis, including yeah. sharing, yeah. sharing chewing gum, sharing toothbrushes. It, you know, so he he went to France, and that is where he learned about what we call plastic surgery. Um, and he came back, and he said that these people don't have to suffer. And he had people who were considered medical monsters. And that was a term, you know, teratology, teratological comes from, I don't know if it's Greek or Latin, Hannah would know that better than me, Greek, uh, monsters. And there was um, uh, an exhibit before Spit Spread's death that was about, you know, if you were born with... uh, a conjoined limb or uh, polydactyly that you could be killed at birth. You were seen as a demon. You were seen as, as a, and so he saw these people who were suffering like his family had suffered and were not being offered any kind of relief or treatment. And he said, I can do better. And he specialized in not just surgery, but in this very specific kind of surgery. There's a a wax mold of a woman who had a horn growing out of her forehead. No one would help her. Mm -hmm. And so he grew this reputation and garnered this base of students who their whole deal was, I can help you. I want to help you. And they weren't in it for, I want the prestige. They were in it because no one had been able to help him or his family. And he wanted to help the people who had no one. And so people actually came to him from all over. And one of the reasons that he didn't write very much was because he focused on training his students and on doing the surgery so that when he died, because he knew he wasn't going to live very long, mm-hmm. he knew that he was he was not long for this world. So he wanted to train as many people as he could. And one of those was actually a doctor whose name was Squibb, who went on to uh, be one of the founders of Bristol-Myers Squibb. So, um, but people would come to him and there are, there's a procedure, syphilis rots your face and hence the no-nose club. And so mm-hmm. a common procedure that he created was something called the mutter flap, where he would take skin from your forehead and actually fold it down so that you never lost the blood supply to form your new nose. And that's still used today. Yeah. We talked so, about that too in the operating. So when we, we talk about, about Nick and all of that stuff. Yeah, so when we talk about this culture of, empathy and respect and not infreakment, but really that Dr. Mutter had this entire goal of saying, these are people, these are people who have medical problems that can be helped. And these are people who deserve care and respect. And something he did that was, again, 
he was largely ostracized by the medical community. He was the first one to say, what if we use ether? They said, absolutely not, which actually had some good reasons that I'm not going to get into right now. But he was the first one to say, we should let people recover. At the time, they said, that's wild. He had to rent out a hotel floor where he would send his patients to recover Mm -hmm. because you were so likely to die in the recovery. He was the first one who said, let's wash our hands, which his peers took as an insult because the idea was that a doctor is a gentleman and a gentleman is always clean. Mm-hmm. And so you had doctors who their coats were, <laughs> excuse me, stiff with viscera. Yeah. And it was a sign of a trusted surgeon to be filthy with yeah. gore because it meant you had a lot of patients. Mm-hmm. And he said, we got to be clean. This is just, there's two. And they didn't quite have the, the goings on of germ theory yet, but he, you know, he was just at the forefront of so much thinking And so when he made this collection, it isn't a freak show. It isn't a sideshow. It is a collection of humanity and the fact that there is no normal body. There is no, you know, even the idea of a deformity, there is no regular body. All bodies are different and strange and all bodies deserve care. What you hear from people with disabilities is that they say, and there's a, an author, activist, artist who I love, Reva Lehrer, who has spina bifida, who talks about how um, the first time she saw someone with her condition was in the mutter. And that she had gone her entire life without seeing anyone who looked like her. And she'll say, you know, people talk about representation. Imagine there not being anyone who you can find who looks like you. And then being able to go somewhere and not only see someone who looks like you, but see that they are being treated with respect and that they are being presented in a way that is caring. That is huge. And so that is also like Hannah was saying, where you see the difference between these anthropological museums where they are presented as, look at how these people lived. Look at what the, you know, look at these differences. When you go to the Mutter, you are seeing a thread through humanity that displays that we are all bodies and that all bodies deserve care and that your body is like this body. We're all just on a spectrum of normal. There's no real one side or the other. It's just- Normal is the mess in the middle. Right, we're we're all on that spectrum somewhere and that's the beauty of a space like the Mütter. So let's, um, let's go now to more present day. And we had kind of started by talking about that a little bit with sort of the genesis of your campaign, Protect the Mütter. But uh, let's talk about sort of the moment that all of this started to come to the forefront, where all of a sudden um, what what was seemingly a small thing became this larger movement in the conversation of repatriation. And then Mütter ultimately ended up on sort of this hit list, right? So... Um, there's a couple strata of what's going on here. Um, there is the conversation about repatriation, which, and and Hannah and I want to be really clear, and our campaign has been really clear, that in no way do we oppose repatriation of remains. Um, we always point out that Thomas Hurtis, who was an Australian private from World War I, um, he ended up in the pathology collection after he committed suicide, because uh, he didn't want to live, live with a sucking head wound. And his family identified his remains and said, we want the skull back. And his skull was repatriated to Australia to be reburied. Um, his, so, his body is actually buried in France. It was just his face, which is, which is another part of that. It's a part of that conversation and that nuance of repatriation, because his family was very determined that he not be united with his body, but that he go back to Australia. That's so interesting. So fascinating. Yeah. Which is why we don't get to necessarily decide why it's important for the family to be involved. It's it's incredibly important for that conversation to happen. There's no one side fits all. Which, as my friend is saying, is very important for the campaign that none of us are opposing any repatriation efforts. We are just all aware of the nuances and the issues that come along with this. For example, as we were talking about earlier with, you know, paperwork issues, if you died, you didn't get a death certificate until the undertaker wrote it out. The problem we have with returning any part of uh, JW, the balloon man, 
is he never got a death certificate. We don't know his full name. We have a photo of him. We know his initials. We don't know his name. We can't find it. It has been, people have tried. So there are- And this also- Sorry, and Hannah, and we, um, for our listeners, if our, our older listeners, if you remember, we interviewed um, John Ferry from John's Bones a while ago. And one of the things we talked about then is, you know, theoretically, if we say, okay, we should no longer have human bones, human remains, everything should be buried. But who gets to decide that? And where do they go? Not only and, that, but I don't <laughs> want to be buried. That's you the know. thing. Well, that's what um, I'm going to say. Who decides that? I, yeah. you know, I have certain... Um, you know, traditions in my family, the things that certain, and I know people within my own like family group friends that are very divided on what they want for their bodies after they die. And again, it's one of those things where it's very easy to say the family should get them back. It is a different thing. Again, when you just, just the first level of nuance, when you say, let's say that these remains are 150 years old. Yeah. Let's say then maybe they did have kids. They could have a fourth generation pool of descendants who are all of a sudden being told we have your great great grandfather's foot what do you want to do with it right or Uh. (laughs) you have somebody who has no descendants i wouldn't want my third cousin telling anybody what to do with my body now it's different when you have different cultural mores which is where that comes up with native americans where you have tribes that may have very specific cultural uh, uh, dealings you know, that may have very specific rituals yeah. um, that you can point to and say, this person is Chickahominy and they are supposed to be buried according to these things. That is different. But if I died with no descendants and 150 years later, somebody finds, you know, through ancestry or whatever the case may be, and they reach out to my sister's great-great-granddaughter and they say, hey, we have your great-great-grandmother's sister's foot what do you want to do with it? I don't think, and this is me personally, if I said, well, what's it doing now? And they said, well, she had uh, gout and her foot is in a medical museum to teach people about gout. I'd go, okay, keep it there. Yeah. What am I going to do with a gout foot that's 150 years old? Why not a relative that I don't know. Of a relative that I don't know and I have no connection to. Now, some people might say, absolutely, I'm so connected to my family. Give me that gout foot. Yeah, my ancestors are yes. important to me, and I want it to be but part I of think the family. That if you think about it, not in the case of these are on display, you know, and shoved in a diorama. If you say people still have gout now, which they do. They do. And people can go to the mutter and see a gout foot and a gout stool and understand, you know, why it used to be so much more prevalent and what it looked like and what it did to you. And this is on display for that purpose. That is, I think, a beautiful legacy to take somebody's life of pain and provide healing to people now um, and provide information and education right. for people well, who might not have, ne- have no idea what gout is. Right. So on the other side of the aisle the people who have sort of been getting louder on this, they their argument, of course, is one of, but they didn't have a choice. They don't mm-hmm. get to decide, right? They didn't say, here you go. Here's my gout foot. Teach everybody all about my gout foot. Maybe it was someone who was like, who was like an Einstein who said, no, I don't ever want to be on display. That's mm-hmm. not something I want. But the problem with this, with certain individuals is, we don't know what they wanted, mm-hmm. right? And so for people on the other side of the argument, and this, of course, leads us back to where we were going a minute ago, um, There's there's been a big shift at the museum. And part of that shift has been a change with the administration. So, and, and help me with my timeline here because I'm not as uh, fluent in this as you are. When Kate Quinn came on, for the head leadership of the executive meeting. director. She's called an executive director. I couldn't remember if she is yeah. CEO or executive director. Um, when she got hired for executive director, um, was that before uh, the, all of this controversy really started? It was right before. And so then it's been under her uh, leadership that this has all really ratcheted up and i and i use that word because that's really what has gone on it's been a very sudden 
an intense shift. And it, and unlike what you're talking about, where you feel there's a lot of nuance in this conversation, yeah. she's she's gone a hundred percent in the direction it would seem of no, 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 no. This is all bad. We got to take it all away. So, so far, so I don't want to dominate, Hannah. May I? Yes, of course. I am. I I give you the floor. I cede. So a little background on Kate Quinn. Kate Quinn was uh, an exhibits maker for Ripley's Believe It or Not. Then she went to the Penn Museum, which, as you know, is comes up in this repatriation conversation a lot, mm-hmm. where uh, they had two big issues of um, unethical human remains, which are one, the Morton Skull Collection, which was a collection that was created by the racist phrenologist, uh, Dr. Morton, which was supposed to be, look at these skulls, phrenology is different. Everyone is. Here's one of each racial type from around the world. Doing it to prove a point of inferiority, superiority, et cetera. The the other point of contention, uh, big point of contention at Penn, were the MOVE remains. Um, So for anybody who is not from Philly or not familiar, the MOVE bombing was... Uh, May 13th, 1985, the city of Philadelphia bombed a house on Osage Avenue that was a, um, there's some debate about um, what the group's legacy should be, um, but they were a black nationalist group that was viewed as a threat by the city and by, they uh, engaged in an armed standoff with the police and Mayor Good decided to drop a bomb on their house and blew up an entire block uh, in Osage of city of the city of Philadelphia, and the remains from that bombing uh, included several children, um, and the remains were used in the trial as evidence, and then they were sort of parceled out. Um, so this Ooh. is where a big scandal broke, yeah. actually partially during the pandemic, because it turned out that the Philadelphia Medical Examiner. Uh, at first, it was thought that they had destroyed move remains, and then it turned out that they hadn't destroyed them, but they were just in a box on a shelf. Um, and Awful. the Penn Museum had something kind of similar where they had, and again, when we say remains, and this is not to to um, downplay it, just to give more context, uh, there was a piece of a pelvic bone. I believe there was a piece of femur yeah. that Penn had held on to and was using to teach um, and had sort of just like, again, in a box. Um, and the issue there is that you have living descendants and living family members of... That's 1985. That's 1985. You had parents who supposedly yeah. buried right. children whose remains were not actually buried. Yeah. Right. Those parents so, happened to all, have also been in prison at the time, some of them, which is a whole so, other layer. So wow. the, the move family, the the last name that they took is Africa, just so again for context. So mm-hmm. you have um the the Africa family who found out uh that there were still remains of their family members that were at Penn that were being displayed and being taught by and were just, you know, keep being kept in a box titled move. Um and so some of them have been returned. There is currently a big controversy. And I don't know enough about either side to say there are people who believe that there are still remains at Penn, at the Penn Museum, from the move bombing. Oh, Um, no, really? And the Penn Museum says that there are not. People on the other side said that there are. There there are lawsuits. There are court cases. There are controversies. I have no insight as to who's right. I just... I would imagine they could get a warrant for that if they really... There, there is an ongoing huge scandal about it um and again pen pen museum says they don't have them critics say that they do Mm -hmm. so that is where she was kate quinn was the director there and she worked there for 15 years so that is where she also just set the scene for philadelphia not just the person who came in but that philadelphia has already had a lot of scandals break and so there is a culture of fear for other yes. institutions. And so this all ties into a ProPublica report that came out um, around the beginning of the year that listed institutions that still have unrepatriated Native American remains and that have remains that um, are unrepatriated. And the Penn Museum got lumped in with the mutter. And mm-hmm. the Penn Museum is currently in a very toxic position 
because there's this controversy as to whether or not they still have the move remains. Um, they were still displaying the Morton Crania collection. They, uh, and again, this is where Kate Quinn came from. Okay. Yeah. So she came from here. So she sees this ProPublica report. She has come from this environment. So after Penn, she goes to the Michener where she was briefly, it's a Delaware Valley Museum, uh, so basically an art museum. Uh, she was there for about a year and a half. And then she goes to the Mutter. This ProPublica report comes out that is very incendiary for good reason, because Native American remains should be repatriated, um, as should the remains of people who have ancestors or descendants who have claims sure. to them. And she's automatically... And she is automatically like, I am not getting involved in another museum that is going to be scandal-plagued and is sure. going to have all of these issues bring everything down. And that is when all the online resources come down. So without any sort of review or conversation or accountability or transparency, all of a sudden you have this very reactive uh, move to strip the online resources to avoid even the appearance of impropriety um, or scandal. And so I know that that was a lot of background, but it's no, it's so important. It's so important. And she has said the ProPublica report, you know, um, and so that ProPublica report had really opened the door. And now you see reporting about uh, the American, I think it's Aaron Thompson or Thomas, I'd have to look, but um, art crime prof on Twitter just did this huge report for hyperallergic about the American Museum of Natural History. Yeah. Um, there's the Penn Museum, the Smithsonian. Uh, the Penn Museum recently updated their human remain display policy and said that they are no longer going to display any human remains that are exposed. So mummies, yes, but just remains, no. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, it's sweeping through the museum. Which, world. again, I just want to, like, draw us back to the fact that we've mentioned the Penn Museum, which is an anthropology museum, the Museum of Natural right. History, which is a natural history museum, the Smithsonian, which is a natural history museum. None of these are medical museums. None of these are anatomy collections. None of these are pathology collections. These, In are other words, the body parts don't serve a teaching purpose. They're not needed to be there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There was just collections where, by and large, with the exception of very specific exhibits like there was one time the Smithsonian did an amazing forensics exhibit that they looked at a dig in Jamestown and were able to do a whole bunch. That, that makes a very sense. specific thing, but sure. it's not the entire purpose of the museum. Yeah. And sure. so there's like the, there was just a bunch of news pieces about this diorama exhibit at the Carnegie Museum of lion attacking um, a dromedary. And it turned out that the, it was a, a supposedly Arab man who's on a camel being attacked by a lion, right? Mm -hmm. And they found out that the head was actually a skull that had like um, um, molding around it to look like a head. You know, it wasn't like a mannequin head. It was a real skull. And so they have taken... Why? Why right, would you exactly. find this all the time in old... Like, find it all the time. If you, if and anyone so, is curious and feels like looking up weird things like that cover bone, um, there are a whole bunch of projects where they have x-rayed um, moulages, so wax models of different pathologies. And they discovered that famous ateliers in Paris that were making these were just using scrap bones for a lot of them. Bones. You just you have, yeah. You just, they have like it's not unusual. Is my point? It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. In Pennsylvania, there was um, a funeral home that had a skeleton on display, Stone Man Willie. Um, yeah, we know and, all about him, and he yeah. was like a local mascot. And it was only yeah. incredibly recently that he was reinterred. You know, like two weeks so, ago. Yeah, so <laughs> like then, very recently. Like very recently, and so mm -hmm. that's the sort of spectrum when we talk about those things don't need to be on display. Like those don't need to be bodies. Like right. lion attacking a dramedy didn't need to have a human skull in it. No. You know, whereas the purpose of human remains on display for the mutter are very important that they are human. Yeah. Because there is a difference. And again, we have had people who say being able to see a body, not a plastic model, not a drawing, a body, 
that is like my body is life-changing. That concludes part one of our series on the controversy at the Mutter Museum. Part two is only going to be released on Patreon. In part two, we're going to discuss more about the controversy itself, the recent town hall meeting that took place at the Mutter, and sort of where things are headed in terms of Protect the Mutter and the museum itself. We hope you'll join us over at Patreon. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Morbid Museum Podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Get the latest on Instagram and TikTok at The Morbid Museum. Get in touch with us at themorbidmuseum at gmail.com. Consider becoming a supporter of our podcast by joining us on Patreon. Become an official Morbuddy today. As always, we'd like to send a special thank you to all our Patreon listeners. Without you, this podcast really wouldn't be possible. In particular, we want to send extra big, humongous thanks to our Morbid for Life tier buddies, Dennis Barrett and Haley Lamp. Thank you so much, guys. We love you. Until next time, we'll see you for another gallery talk inside the Morbid Museum podcast. Bye. Bye-bye.